Hi FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. It is 7.20, it is Wednesday, which means we are joined by our science communicator, Dr. Carl. Dr. Carl, good morning, how are you today? It was so peachy keen, Dr. Howard, so we missed you last week, but yes. other things were happening. Sorry about All right. that. Alright, well I hope they were good things. Let's, uh, let's talk about boredom in education. I'm fascinated by this because I've noticed that when I don't have my cell phone with me or when I'm, and, and I allow myself to be a little bit bored, then I actually find I'm quite creative. So, so I'm interested to hear if there's a science behind this. Ah, there is about that aspect of boredom, and it is well known that if you are incredibly busy, you might be doing stuff, but it's not necessarily as creative mm. as if you can just sit there and be bored, and you are quite observant in your seeing of what's going on. If you're bored. Things from inside you will bubble up and people say, but what if I don't have anything inside me? You do. do. We all have something inside (laughs) us and you've just got to give yourself the right environment. And sometimes it's hard. If you're working 16 hours a day earning money for the family, I I hear where you're coming from. But So that's one aspect of boredom, that you need boredom to be truly creative. Mm -hmm. But the other is that the mere anticipation of boredom will make you bored. And this is in a very artificial setting, which is university lectures. And the paper is called Whatever Will Bore, Will Bore. Mm-hmm. Colon, the mere anticipation of boredom increases its occurrence in lectures. So at various universities, both in King's College and in the University of Hong Kong, they carried out this study over several years with several hundred students. And they basically did what all psychology experiments do. They lied to their subjects. And instead of saying, we want to see how bored you get, they said, oh, we'd like you to um, evaluate this movie about emotion and learning and creativity. And then they said, look, um, this is a really boring movie. Sorry about that. And other people said, this movie has been voted the most interesting movie of the year and it made it to number one on TikTok and YouTube. Both were lies. And if people thought they were going to have a boring time, most of them were bored. Wow. And if they thought they were going to have a good time, most of them had a good time. And it just shows goes to show how your preconception of an experience can change it. So if you go through life with an optimistic point of view, now I'm sort of stretching a little bit here, Mm, mm. but it does seem that if you've got an optimistic point of view that can influence things so that you end up being less bored and having a better time and your life becomes happier. I think that Maybe. Is, you know, we, we often say it that our thoughts create reality and that we bring things upon ourselves. And we always think of it or we tend to use magical thinking rather than saying, well, you see, you put it out there and it was. But actually what we're doing is it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. Um, and so, for example, saying, I can't possibly get out of this car park because there's mm. only five centimeters in front and rear. Instead of you say, well, instead of taking three goes to get out, it's going to take 30. Here's number one, number five. And then gradually you work your way out and you get there. 
So it's just being positive. Mm. I, I know that's fairly shallow to talk about a positive attitude, but still. No, I don't think, well, I don't think it is because it does, it, these are ways in which we actually see how they, uh, how it impacts. Uh, very, very interesting indeed. Let's talk about monitoring communication skills by speaking backwards. Yeah, it turns out that there's a few parts of the world where people actually speak backwards. Have you ever run across any of these? I don't think so, but maybe I have. Tell me more. Well, in this paper, which is called Neurocognitive Signatures mm -hmm. of Phonemic Sequencing. Oh, my God, I don't understand what you're talking about. In expert backward speakers. Okay, now we're saying they're talking about people who can speak backwards expertly. And it turns out that in Australia, mm -hmm. for a long time, butchers were taught to speak backwards. You have to explain it, that more. Why? why? Well, the and what does it mean? Shop, mm. It's got lots of very hard surfaces in it. Right. You know, tile. Right. And there's lots of germs. So you've got to have tile so you can wipe it down and get it really clean. Mm -hmm. And the tiles reflect the sound really well, especially from the back of the shop. Right. And if somebody at the back of the shop says, oh, my God, this meat is rotten, we can't possibly sell it to the customers, and the customers hear it at the front, they're not going to be happy. Right. So the butchers have over the, I guess, many decades evolved into speaking backwards. They, they have special backward speaking things like, uh, this meat is really good. Uh, give it to Howard because he's such a nice guy or something <laughs> like that, right? Right. So in this particular case, they were not looking at backward speakers in the English language in Australia, in butcher shops, but rather in Laguna. Mm -hmm. in Spain, right. where a lot of the people do backward speaking. And they've also found a few other areas around the world, but they went to Laguna, and what they did was look, when, when they said in the title, expert backward speakers, so these people were expert at talking backwards, um, uh, but it's got speakers for plural, how many? The bare minimum, two. Right. So there's two ways you can talk backwards. One is you just re do, do all the letters backwards. So basket, B-A-S-K-E-T, turns into T-E-K-S-A-B, Texab, that's one way of doing it. Right. Well, the other one is you just swap the syllables. Instead of it saying basket, you say ket bath. Okay? Right. So these people were going, could do both. And they did bits of brain scans on them, and they found that in some people, in one of them, they, sometimes they shared some bits of the brain that were active when they were talking backwards, and sometimes they didn't. So it's a lousy study. That's it. That's all you got. You got nothing. <laughs> so we, we, all we've done is look at two people in the whole world right. by analysing their brains while they speak backwards, and we, we need a bigger sample size, like several hundred. Right. But you've got to do the first one before you can do the second right. one. Right. That's part of the deal. Well, it's funny. I was thinking, uh, you know, and, and I, I actually always think of it as an Australian thing, is that people talk backwards in the sense that you say how are you and they say not too bad um, are you doing well well can't complain I'm not too bad this isn't uh, this isn't shabby uh, you know so we talk in the negative but I think that's a bit uh, uh, in in many parts of the world but I guess that's not quite the same thing that we no it's sort of like an Australian laconic thing yes. how far is it not too far not too far how exactly not too bad yeah, it's just being laconic and dry, I guess. Uh, and uh, finally, using dead spiders to grip and release objects. Well, yeah, we're trying to do robotic things all over the place. 
And we've been using biological materials like non-living materials derived from living organisms like thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of years, you know, like clothes, fur, animal hides. And in, in this case, we're using a dead spider leg as an actuator. So if you get the leg of a spider and you look at it, you think, ah, it doesn't work by muscles. It works by hydraulic pressure. Mm. And if you have no hydraulic pressure, it just goes closed. And if you open it up, if you shove in hydraulic pressure, it opens. So there you have a natural actuator, which has a rest position of closed and uh, an activated position of open. So you can use, and they call this by the unique word of necrobiotics. And people have been using this in surgery for thousands of years. So the oldest surgery that we know of goes back about, Oh, not, not, it's not the oldest anymore, but one of the mm. oldest surgeries is trepanation, where you're cutting into the side of the skull right. to relieve pressure yes. from a burst meningeal artery. Right. And there's a lot of stuff involved, but it, it ties into the ant. So what you do is you cut it open with some obsidian rock so it's really, really sharp and clean. Or coral. Both of them work. Right. It was done in the South Pacific for many, you know, maybe 10,000 years minimum, and in South America. And then you find the burst artery, which is called the middle meningeal artery. So you cut through the skin and the bone. You find the middle meningeal artery, and you tie the ends of it off with spider web, which has kind of got its own natural antibiotic in it. And then you put the bone back where it was, and you try to hold it in with a bit of spider web, which is hard, but you do it. And then with the flesh you got this gap in the flesh. So what you do is you get the ant, the biting ant, and you put its jaws up against the flesh. And it goes, pince, and it closes. And it grabs the two bits of flesh and pulls them together, and then you twist off the body of the ant, and you've got yourself a little natural suture, which once again has its own natural antibiotic properties. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. It is 7.30. Dr. Carl, thank you as always. Certainly I learned a lot of interesting things this morning.